You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. And with me, when a dude chump pump points a finger like a stump, he tells him, step off, I'm doing the hump. It's Mr. Jeff McLodge Huge. <laughs> hey, everybody. Yes, it's me. Yep. And you kind of look like MC Hammer on crack. I, I do have to tell you that. Well, when, when is MC Hammer not on crack? That's what I want to know. Now, now he's like just addicted to Cheeto dust. <laughs> What's going so, on? How are you? Um, I don't have much. It's, it's pretty quiet here. I was driving around with my daughter. The passenger in a car, after not being the passenger in a car for a long time, you start to notice all these like weird-ass details in your neighborhood and stuff. Did you notice that there's no brake pedal on your side of the car? I did notice that. <laughs> uh, that doesn't stop me from trying to step on it. But right. uh, what I noticed is like I keep passing houses and there's like they have a TV up on a wall and then there's like an LED strip behind the TV. Uh-huh. And it's like going red, green, yellow, pur- purple, blue, red, purple, blue, green, yellow, red. And I, I sit to me I'm like, how the, how the hell can you watch TV if the behind the TV is friggin' spazzing out with colors? And she goes, I don't know, everybody does that. And I said, everybody does what? She goes, uses those LED strips for stuff. And my kids have them in their room. So, like, Ian's room is purple, and then it's red, and then it's yellow, and then it's blue. And it's like Christmas every yeah. day. I can understand. Those Those are actually nice lights, the way they go up the corner of the room and stuff like that. It's kind of like a low-key lighting. I don't know if I would want the... The changing of colors like that. Although I do have one of those in my toilet, but mostly I just keep it on red, so it looks like the there's, there's like a portal from hell. <laughs> Give me your waist, okay? All right, yeah. I'm coming. I saw that in a meme once that, that about you know the toilet lighting up like that. And I was like, I need one of those. I need that right I, now. Yeah. I don't know, my like I I can't sleep unless it's it has to be like as dark as it can possibly be. If I could buy that like super duper black paint. Oh yeah, and paint my room in it. I would, so it would I, just absorb ninety percent of the light. My, I'm the same way. I'm, my room is as dark as a grave digger's asshole at midnight, and <laughs> and I will occasionally sleep with a blindfold. Yeah, yeah, I've done the same thing. My, I can see under the crack of my door like the lights changing in my kids' rooms. It's like, <laughs> how do you do? How can you sleep through that? That just lighting. I, maybe it's a kid thing, but lighting always has like this weird. I don't want to say like culty thing, but there's all these fads that kind of come and go with it. Oh, for like, sure. Right now, obviously, it's LED lights. Now, like I remember, like when we were kids, my brother and I, anytime we saw like some sort of weird lighty thing at Spencer's or more right. commonly at a neighborhood yard sale, we would buy it just so we could just light up the room with like. I remember one that just had this like spinning light 
filter that had like three or four different colors on it. Yep. I always like the ones like again you bring up Spencer Gifts, right? Yeah. Like the one with all the fiber optic strands that came out and that one had like three or four filters inside that changed color. Yep. I always thought those were cool, like those plasma lights that you could touch and it would like put the plasma on the glass against your hand. I always yep. thought those were neat, but like I never had one. No. You know, I never, it was not like my friends all had plasma lights, you know. Oh, they were cool to look at. You're going to Spencer Gifts, you're like, hey, check this out. Oh, I'm getting electrocuted. Uh, hey, these are pretty cool. How much are they? Ooh, never mind. <laughs> and if you're at my house, my dad would have been like, you're not plugging that thing in. That <laughs> thing costs like $4 an hour to run. <laughs> <laughs> Can I get a Jacob's Ladder? No! <laughs> Exactly. Uh, I, I myself personally am celebrating. It's actually uh, this week um, on the first day, April the 5th, is uh, is Lava Lamp Day. And I am celebrating ah. Lava Lamp Day. I actually have a lava lamp. It's blood red because, well, it's me. And I like it. It's, uh, it's soothing. I kind of like lava lamps. I had one for a few years and then, like all lava lamps do, it... It aged out. Yeah, it stops lavering, yeah. Became like a big clump of something that looks like dried flesh. Yeah. Sort of stuck to the top of a one liter bottle. <laughs> yeah, I had one. They were it's cool. They were cool. Hot Yes. Those things are not cool, like to the touch, but they're cool to look at. And they probably cost more to run than a uh plasma ball. Oh, I'm sure they do. So one thing that we do with this show, if you've noticed, and you just heard it a couple of seconds ago, anytime there's a swear word, I always bleep it out. And it's not, it's not because we have to. You know, we don't have sponsors. We don't have uh, anything like that. We don't have to bleep out the swears, but I think bleeps are funnier than the swears themselves. If I just said bleep instead of the swears that I usually say, would you put a swear over the bleep? Yes. Sleep. <laughs> there it is. That's awesome. Yep. I just want you to know that. Topic of our trivia question this week. Oh boy. Which movie was the first movie to drop an F-bomb? Which movie was the first movie to drop an F-bomb? I'm going to have to think about this. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it was a movie that was made between 1967 and 1971. That's as much as I'm going to give away right now. That is an excellent guess. You're there. I'll give you another hint. The F wasn't the only bomb dropped in that movie. Ah, okay. All right, but let's get the show started. Let's get rolling. I started last week, so therefore it must be your turn this week. What's our first day? All right, April 5th, 1987. Fox TV, which in 1987 was a brand new TV network, mm -hmm. uh, premieres two of its original shows that ran for a very long time, Married with Children and The Tracy Ullman Show. Yay. And our audience may be asking themselves, what the hell is The Tracy Ullman Show? Uh, it was a, a sketch comedy show known primarily now for introducing The Simpsons, right. which was a short that ran on The Tracy Ullman Show for a couple of years before it became its own TV program. Tracy Ullman, she was British, and she was one of those do-everything people, like triple threats yep. or whatever, because she could sing, she could dance, and she was also yep. a comedian and actress. Uh, I remember she, before The Tracy Ullman Show came out in the 80s, uh, Tracy Ullman had like a uh, a one hit wonder called "They Don't Know About Us." Sir Paul McCartney, the oldest living dead member of the Beatles, <laughs> uh, makes a cameo appearance in that video. She also made a couple of movies that were relatively well regarded too. She was in like three or four movies between 1987, 88, and around 1990 or 91, and then she kind of disappeared from public eye. I hope. She has a great agent and a great lawyer that somehow gets her, I don't know, 
couple of pennies on the dollar for the Simpsons, seeing as she's the one that introduced them. Right. You know, I because mean, I mean Tracy Ullman, like you just said, who? But everybody knows who the Simpsons are, but they started with Tracy Ullman. Right. And like what made these shows different than what was on network TV, aside from the fact that the, one of them was like a, a sketch comedy show, and that wasn't on any TV show at the time, Right, is that Married with Children was way more, what's the phrase, like earth, I don't want to call it vulgar, but like earthy and cutting edge than anything that was on network TV. The Bundys weren't wholesome. Parents oh, no. They really like each other. You know what I mean? And And... They were a very sharp contrast to other sitcom families. Right. Look at what was on TV at the time besides, you know, Married with Children. So you had like Growing Pains with the perpetually Christian Kirk Cameron. You know, that was just a right. that was just such a wholesome family and even an edgier kind of family like Family Ties. That was still like wholesome and just a warm glass of hot chocolate. And then the Bundys, yeah, like, you know, the Bundys were just hilariously attacking one another constantly. Right. And, and like, it was a, like a meditation on failure, too. Like, it's a 180 degrees from, like, the Cosby show where yep. Dr. Huxtable is, is well-to-do and, and established. Yeah. His wife is a lawyer. And in Married with Children, like, Al Bundy, like, peaked in high school. Right. And now he sells, like, women's shoes. His wife doesn't do anything but sort of sit around the house. And, you know, it's – and they bicker constantly, but it's not – It's sometimes it's super mean-spirited. And, and it's like there's a, there's a lot going on there that, like, gets underneath the – veneer that the typical sitcom had at the time and it made the show incredibly funny yeah it's still funny in reruns now yeah and like we uh like we established a couple of weeks ago during the celebrity birthdays just about everybody on the show went on to very successful careers except for bud bundy but you know maybe maybe he's happy (laughs) david faustino and no one was uh was good now i think it's excellent now but at the time i was upset on the the very final episode of married with children we all just wanted to have al just like succeed and make it like win the lottery ticket but no he just sucked right till the very end (laughs) yep what's kind of cool is i've gone back now every now and then and i watch like like the retrospective interviews with with the cast. Yep. There was one where um, in Christina Applegate's show, Christine, I think that was the name of it, a sitcom that ran for a couple of seasons. Yep. When Ed, o- Ed O'Neill like is on set there, and he's like just walking around in the kitchen set in front of a live audience, and she comes to the door and she opens the door and he goes, "Where have you been, young lady?" <laughs> and she just like drops everything and just runs up and gives him a giant hug and starts to cry because she hasn't seen him in a few years. Like. Sure. Like that relationship that they had was really, really had a really strong bond, and oh yeah, to see the way that they sort of interact now is is just is just amazing. And yeah, and also you know she was like a little girl when she first started on that show. I think she was like right. fourteen. All right, moving on to the next day, we have April the sixth, nineteen eighty. Post-it notes debut on the market, invented by Arthur Fry, not those two little girls from Romeo and Michelle's class reunion. <laughs> Which was, a, which was a great bit in the movie. Interesting story about post-it notes. It, it, it's a pretty familiar story, but I'm going to tell it again anyway. Post-it notes are, like Married with Children, a meditation in failure. Your friend and mine, Arthur Fry, was trying to make a poxy that would stick anything to anything. And then what he ended up accidentally inventing is a glue that doesn't stick anything to anything, pretty much. So, yeah, post-it notes became, you know, incredibly useful. But, yeah, but they're ultimately a failure. Trying to make something 
as you know the strongest glue possible, and he ended up making the weakest glue possible. He was very good at sticking paper to other paper. Yep. <laughs> and occasionally, if you look at any computer monitor built between 1990 and probably present, paper to computer monitor. Yes. And that's, that's pretty much what it sticks to. Yep. Um, there's the some of them come like you know because they're all stuck together, but some of them come like in a zigzag form, like the top is yep. stuck to the bottom, the bottom is stuck to the top, and yep. never fails. I will knock that big one off my desk. It's oh no! It's like a big the <laughs> big paper slinky all over the floor. <laughs> yeah, I hate when that happens. Also on this day, like that we don't usually bundle inventions together, but this one is sort of weirdly related. Yep. But in 1938, Roy J. Plunkett invented Teflon. Everybody knows what Teflon is, right? The weird thing about Teflon was that Roy Plunkett had the he, – he invented it in 1938, but it didn't go on the market for a couple of years because he couldn't find the right name for it. No matter what he tried, nothing stuck. <laughs> what would happen if he tried to stick a, like a post-it note to Teflon? It probably just create a hole in the space-time <laughs> continuum. It'd probably be the slipperiest surface known to man. <laughs> just go back in time. <laughs> what happened to Jeff? Oh, my God. He was trying to tell me to not use the stainless steel scrubber on the new Teflon pans, and he vanished. What happened to Jeff? I don't know, but he left me a note. <laughs> I found it on the floor because it didn't stick to anything. So. All right. All right. Moving on. Next day. What do we got? Uh, April 7th, 1933. It's the very end of uh, Prohibition. becomes National Beer Day. Oh, wow. Cullen Harrison Act comes into effect and legalizes the sale of Low alcohol beer, and that's any beer with alcohol content of 3.2% or less, which is basically like drinking no beer at all. <laughs> no beer at all. Tastes like beer, but boy, you'd have to drink an awful lot of it to get uh, beer happy. Basically, you're smashing up cornflakes in a glass. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> but bubbly. Uh, it's like, it's like this tastes like piss, and I'm not getting drunk. Uh, I think I'm going to go have some water. 3.2 beer, you can still buy it. And in some dry states like Utah and stuff, I think you can still buy 3.2 beer. I remember watching one of those health class videos about drinking, you know, when we were in high school. The college student was like, oh, I'm not worried. It's 3.2 beer. It's 3.2 beer. It's 3.2 beer. I was thinking of that. I think I sat next to you watching that movie in high school. And then, because I remember that too. And then at the end, of, I remember that that scene and everything. Uh, you can't you drown before you get drunk at three point two beer, yeah, and at, right? And at the end of the video, at the end of the film, he's wrapped he his, his car yeah, he wrapped his the... Toyota around a, a thing, and he gets out of the the, the car. He's all <laughs> face, and uh, yeah, that's three point <laughs> two beer, guys. That worst part was the the scene that they cut out, which was him like literally pissing seven gallons of water because <laughs> he, he had to drink that. That much beer to get drunk enough to wreck his car. <laughs> he wrecked his car and ruined his mother's flower bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I remember that video. I remember that. Well, that movie. And three point two beer. <laughs> so, um, so this is before prohibition ends. So this is when low alcohol beer was allowed back onto the market for the first time. But prohibition hadn't officially ended yet. Oh, okay. So you still couldn't buy hard alcohol. Restaurants still couldn't open. Bars couldn't be a thing. But you could buy three point two beer in cans. Mm-hmm. I guess in bottles too in thirty three. And it was a few months after this, or I think it was maybe January first of thirty four is when prohibition ended for real. Okay. And people were like. 3.2 beer, screw that, I'm going to drink you know, 50 proof vodka, <laughs> and that's that. You know? I'm going to drink Sterno. I can drink the good stuff, I can drink acetone right out of the bottle. <laughs> you have a, uh, I'm, I'm not really a, a beer drinker, do you have a, uh, uh, like a, a particular one that you stick with, or do you pop, pop yeah. around? Yeah, of all things, um, although this is not the slogan for it, but here's to swimming with bow-legged women. <laughs> 
Uh, my go-to beer is Narragansett. Originally made in Rhode Island, currently made in New York, but sold from their headquarters in Rhode Island. Uh, that's my that's my go-to cheapo. I beer. thought you were gonna bring up like another state, like the Naked Gun stuff. Tex Colorado, <laughs> the Arizona Assassin. <laughs> the, well, the the reference is that if you if you watch Jaws, yep. the beer that Quint drinks and then crushes on his head and says, "Here's to swimming with bow-legged women," oh, is, Narragans- is Narragansett. Oh wow! So Hooper drives the boat. <laughs> so that's that's my that's my go-to beer. I spent very, very little time in my life uh, drinking. I've never been a, 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 a recreational drinker, per se. I've never, like, kept a beer in the house. Right. But my, I think my favorite beer, if I'm going to have one, is the one that somebody buys for me. <laughs> the beer that somebody else pays yep, for. Hey, I like that. It's my favorite kind. All right, let's go on to the next day. The next day is April the 8th. 1983, David Copperfield makes the Statue of Liberty disappear. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty impressive. But wait a minute. Is, I think there's more This to is probably the worst magic trick of all time. Be, because of my work in the haunted house industry, I'm a, I'm a very big fan of keeping the cards close to the table, so to speak. Like, I don't really talk about which characters are mine and all that because I want people to remain afraid of my characters you know right uh, it's kind of like the the old school wrestling even though i know how the magic trick of the making the statue of liberty is done i don't really want to talk about how it's done because that's i don't know i'm just i'm being like that but well, let me tell you okay, so let me tell you it's a horrible trick <laughs> well let me let me let me let me do this since i have none of those restrictions okay. um what i think there's another component to this that we're not discussing is that he didn't do this trick on like television in front of an audience of millions. Oh no, he did. He didn't do this. No, he did. It was it, did. it was televised. Yeah, but there was only like like a, a dozen people like watching live. Right. And you know, and that's kind of paramount to how the trick works. A live audience of 20, 20 tourists is yeah. how I remember yeah, this. Yeah, but like, like it was on TV, and um, <laughs> all right, without giving the trick away, it does bring me back. To my favorite line from a Doug, one of the Douglas Adams books, there was a magician who had bet his life that in a year's time he could figure out how to make the certain mountain disappear. And it came down to like the day before he still had to figure out how he was going to do it. So he called up his family and he called up his friends and then his family's friends, and then his friend's family, and they all got together in what went down in history as the hardest night's work ever. Mm. And, they, <laughs> and they dismantled the mountain. They took the mountain down to the yeah. ground. It makes sense. Uh, he ended up actually losing the bet because, one, he didn't actually make the mountain disappear, and there was also a suspicious new moon in the sky. <laughs> nice. All right, so, well, well, like I said, I have no such restrictions, so I'm going to just guess. You can tell me if I'm hot or cold as to how he did the trick. Okay. One, uh, he used a big tarp. Hot or cold, no? No. Cold? Very cold. He used a slightly smaller tarp. I told everybody that it was bigger than that. No. Did he use mirrors, Bill? Was there mirrors involved in this? You know what my favorite uh, David Copperfield illusion is? Getting Claudia Schiffer to think he's good looking. David Copperfield. Yep. Entertaining tourists 20 at a time. <laughs> Just like the guy who's down the street, like, threatening to take his pants off. Probably has 30 tourists mm-hmm. or 
figuring out how to give him enough money so he won't do it. Oh. You, you, got a, you got a quarter, so I give you a 3.2 beer. You guys gonna make the statue disappear? Whoa! Let me show you what I can do with my pants. <laughs> I'm gonna make my belt buckle disappear. You better not start putting the money in the guitar case. I don't have a guitar anymore. Alright, next up. April 9th, 1985. Clearly in a bid to destroy the minds of Young girls between the ages of three and nine. The Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus are discovered to be exhibiting unicorns, and I say this with air quotes, that are really goats with surgically altered horns. So Okay, hold on. Wow. What? Let me just get this out of my system. You mad scientist <laughs> crazy person! <laughs> yep. They're like, come and see the amazing unicorns, and the kids were like Oh my god, that's a that looks like a goat. <laughs> it's a goat with a one horn sewn in the middle of its friggin' head. I'm sure that was wonderful for the goats. It was like it's a terrible like I don't know who like there must have been somebody who did, with a lot of cocaine involved and coming up with this idea like, look man, we're struggling. We've been traveling the world, we got elephants, we got trapeze artists, they they're forming a union, we got clowns, everybody's afraid of clowns now because of Stephen King. Thanks a lot, Stephen King. We got a guy who makes balloon animals, but he's on a he's on a special list now or the federal government. He's not allowed within <laughs> 25 feet of young people. What the hell are we going to do? I, you know, we need something special. Like we could we could try and grow giant atomic monster scorpions, but that probably is going to take money that we don't have. But I got I got a brother-in-law who's got goats. I remember the commercials. They were like real live unicorns. And my brother and I were teenagers at the time and we're just like looking at each other going <laughs> There's no unicorns. <laughs> what are they doing? Yes. And they show the they yes. show the unicorns on TV, and it's like uh, something. And it didn't take long. It didn't take long between you know conception and uh, you're busted either. No, no, it, it did not take long. People were like aghast. I'm sure when they first time they saw that, like that's those are clearly goats. Right. And you know, and now, that's not good. Yeah, if this was like in the 1800s, whenever hoaxes were. You know, <laughs> right. we weren't so skeptical, you know? Well, like Barnum used to used to have the Fiji mermaid, which I saw at the International Cryptozoology Museum, the worst waste of $20 I've ever spent. Um, but the Fiji mermaid is there, which is like a fish sewn to a monkey. Right, <laughs> the monkey fish, right, yeah. <laughs> That's not a mermaid. It's a monkey fish. I'm sure the parents are like, I came here for a unicorn, and you showed me a billy goat. <laughs> We're going to have some legal trouble, you and me. Now my daughter is completely destroyed. Why is that unicorn eating a tin can? <laughs> it keeps trying to eat anything. It's, it's not on the foot of the guy with the, that's juggling the chainsaws. And, and Not the first death knell of the circus, but pretty close. I think I think Barnum and Bailey like went out of business in 2017. Unicorns and all. you know. I'm sure that their next plan when this one didn't work was like, now nah, we're sticking with the unicorn theme. Here's what we're going to do. And then they just drop a dead, like, narwhal <laughs> into the middle of the ring. Like, look, everybody, a real unicorn. Yeah, I, and there's a dead narwhal. I, I think the death nail for um, the circus was when that trapeze, like, tragedy happened. That happened in Providence, yeah. too, I think, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay, so here's a, here's a funny one for the 10th. Ready? Ready. The Great Tamale Incident, April 10th, 1976. Your friend and mine, U.S. President Gerald Ford, while he was touring the Alamo, uh, not the basement, just the Alamo itself. Uh, this this was when he was trying to get reelected. I mean, Ford was only president for a couple of months, really. Uh, right, right. So he was on his reelection campaign, and, and they bring him a, a tamale, you know, to eat, you know, traditional uh, food. Right. 
Now, tamales, like all other Mexican food, are basically all the same thing. Flour, flour tortilla, and you know, beef, tomato sauce, vegetables, and all that, right? Yeah, yeah. But the way tamales are cooked is they're cooked inside of uh, a husk. You know, it's either cooked inside of either like a banana leaf or a corn husk or something like that. Yeah, whatever it is, it's got a hard shell on it. Or just like bites into a crunch without taking it without taking it out of the husk first. I'm going to eat a tamale now. You know, so it's a little bit tough. Yeah, so it's like basically you know like you offer him a stick of juicy fruit and he just like puts the aluminum wrapper and it's. Well, the worst part was that after that he went to the local McDonald's and then he bit through this styrofoam <laughs> container to get to the Big Mac on the inside. Right. Now, Gerald Ford, he had a reputation of being a klutz, you know, a bit of a bumbling fool. And, uh, like, he famously fell down the stairs coming out of Air Force One. Chevy yeah. Chase used to make fun of him being so clumsy on uh, Saturday Night Live all yep. the time. Live. So this didn't help his reputation of being, a you know, a bit of a, a ding-a-ling. It happened in Texas, and, you know, Texas has its traditions. And a lot of people right. speculate that that incident, because they constantly played it over and over again, you know. Right. You know, right. kind of like whenever Bush choked on the pretzel, people just talked about that. <laughs> and yeah, was- they basically blame him losing Texas on this, uh, this faux pas. Yeah. I suppose if, like, the foundation of Tex-Mex cuisine, you know, when you're campaigning in New Hampshire, you have to go to the pancake flip-off, and he stands the pancake flip-off and just, like, turns over the whole table like, <laughs> like, that would, <laughs> you'd probably lose New Hampshire, too. Like, you gotta be, you gotta know a little bit about where you're going. He's like, French toast I is mean, better anyway, and then grabs his dick, yeah. I don't like pancakes, I made scrambled eggs. Get out! You belong in Massachusetts with those eggs. (laughs) All right, so let's wrap up the week with the 11th. April 11th is 8-track tape day. So in our continuing uh, seeming exploration of audio formats that have come and gone, analog 8-track tapes were the first portable music that you could stick in a car and wouldn't be impacted by the driving of the car as to how it played the music. So like if you put a record album in the car and you take a corner, record slows down, you slow down, Take a down, corner. Sounds terrible. Or it skips. Take a corner. I mean, I, I really don't know too much about how the rest of the country is, but I live in Massachusetts. You drive down the street with a record player, that thing is just going to be a spiral of, of nothing <laughs> because there's so many potholes and stuff like that. There would be no way to have a record player in a car without right. having it skip. Right. So what an 8-track did was it it was it allowed you to, to put the equivalent of a record album on a tape that looped. And it would just continue to play one track after the other. Usually it was, it's an eight track, but it has four technical tracks because there's, it's stereophonic. So one track is for each speaker. Right. You could jump around in the album or the, the tape by using a one, two, three, four track button, which would move the playhead to a different part of the tape that was playing. The problem was a song might not necessarily end when the track right. does. So you'd be listening to like, Oh no! I'm just going to put this out there. No, like uh, plans for future discussions today. But like, let's say you're listening to ACDC's "Back in Black," and you're like, "Bam, bam, click, bam, <laughs> As it jumps tracks, there's a big mechanical click as the playhead moves yeah. to the next. I remember track. I had it could be. Really I actually had the album "Face Dances" by the Who on eight track, and the the yep. most of the songs were fine. Uh, but one song that got split was The Quiet One, which is the song that John Entwistle sings, 
which is a banger. That is a great song. But unfortunately, yes. you get about halfway through the song, and then it would fade out. Click. And then it would fade back in, and then you have the rest of the song. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yep. So. Yep. And they were undone by cassette tapes, which were more which were more condensed and had easier time, only requiring one head to be able to do stereo. You could put a whole record that mimicked an album with one side on each side of the tape. Right. Although you had to flip it over because this is in the era before auto reverse tape decks. Oh, remember when that happened? Yep. That was like they landed a man on the moon. Or know what yep. the best one was? Like whenever auto flip came out, it was like hoo hoo hoo. And then they had auto search, where yeah. you could hit the button, it would go to the next song. Yep. Heaven. Oh. Yep. I know. I loved it. <laughs> it's what made those pioneer stereos that kept getting stolen from my car so good. <laughs> that's what. That's what made everybody want them. And fi- finally, I ended up putting in one that didn't have any of those, and I was able to. Uh, I was allowed to keep that stereo for at least a year. So then someone stole that I one. Am- all right, uh, let's get on to the celebrity birthdays. All right. First up, uh, April the 5th, 1950. Oh, boy. I, I, I know you love whenever I can't pronounce stuff. It's yeah. true. Agnetha. I think it's Agnetha. Agnetha Falskog, or as I would know her, the blonde one from ABBA. Oh, hey, speaking of bands that come from the 8-track age. Yeah. Boy, you know, I was thinking about that when we were writing down the show and all. Decades can usually be defined, you know, with usually with like with presidents. You know, the 80s is all about Reagan. 60s, even though we had a number of different presidents and he was only president for 3 years, you think 60s, you think of Kennedy. And right. the 90s was Clinton, etc., etc., etc. The 70s, I just think of ABBA, even though they weren't the presidents. The uh, the 70s just look like ABBA. For me, ABBA is like that weird band from the Eurovision Song Contest that, that made it. Yeah, like huge, and too. They, I mean, Yeah, they're, they're, they're still huge. People still love them. I don't understand it, but I can't understand everything. Yeah. I have gold. I have their greatest hits album. I secretly have always wanted to cover Waterloo because I think it's a very catchy song. And I think it would I think that song would be served well doing it in a kind of a punky kind of style. Like I I could definitely see too, my my old band Too Many Gens covering Waterloo. There are a few bands from this era that that will make me change the radio station when they start. This, this is, oh, that's I don't like I don't like any of oh, the yeah, they're not They're not a band that I have any love you'll for. You'll find one. You'll find one someday, I'm no, sure. No, 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 I won't. You'll have to play it for me when I'm dead in my wake. <laughs> like, look, Jeff, I brought an 8-track. You <laughs> can stick it into the 8-track player in my casket. All right, um, next up. April 6, 1955, uh, American character actor Michael Rooker, who played Star-Lord's stepdad. Get his name. The blue guy, Mary Poppins. Blue guy with the with the mohawk, yeah, then the arrow yeah. in Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes. But he's been in a million things. He was in Walking Dead for like three seasons or four seasons. I think it was four seasons. Yep. And he was uh, the guy that got his hand chopped off. He was in uh Mississippi Burning, which is a great movie he, with him in it. He was fantastic in that movie. He was Mr. Zvenning in Mallrats, the game show host. Mr. Yeah, that's right. Or the game show uh, owner. The guy who gets the stink palm. Yep. And my yep. my first introduction to him, and probably yours too, I'm going to guess, 
was his first role in Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. It was indeed. Yep. And I saw th- that movie destroyed a relationship that I was in. That movie is something else, let me tell you. I took a girl who I was very much in love with. I met her in Boston to see that movie at midnight at the Coolidge Corner Theater. Oh my God, that is not a date movie, Jeff. It is not a date movie. It was the last date. You're like Travis from Taxi Driver taking Sybil Shepard to a party. I didn't know. I just thought it would be fun. <laughs> it was fun until the movie was on and then it was not fun anymore yeah that movie and i felt terrible that movie um, is something hey, else yeah. good movie bad probably better that that relationship didn't go anywhere i have a friend that was actually mad at me for showing that movie yeah i've, I've done that with a couple of films where people are like thanks for that okay yeah. hey, dude i just put the movie on like, you didn't like the popcorn i couldn't even eat it uh, and next up are on our celebrity birthdays april the 7th 1954 jackie chan who has never done a movie that people would be absolutely aghast by watching um, no, they more like that guy's still alive. Yeah, Jackie Ch- Jackie Chan is like the nicest guy in a complete contrast to how fast he can kill you. Right. My my first introduction to Jackie Chan was the Cannonball Run. Ah, and mine was in a movie that was made for I think Canon Pictures called The Big Brawl, which was his first American film. Oh wow. Yeah, he uh, it was he played like this. His nephew to his uncle, who was a chiropractor in 1920s Chinatown, and he got involved in this big fight in Texas. The winner would get like $5,000. It was really funny, and it had a lot of really weird stunts. There was a whole big like scene in the middle with a big roller skating like obstacle race. And I was like, who is this? This guy's amazing. And then learned from a documentary called The Incredibly Strange Film Show that he had this just monstrously long and detailed career and started finding and picking his movies out of the movie rental stores and getting comfortable with with all the Chinese films that he made. I think the first one I saw like standalone Jackie Chan movie was the when he started his like kind of like his American career. Yep. Rumble in the Bronx. Yep. Remember that? I remember seeing that in the Yeah, it was a redubbed Rumble in Hong Kong. <laughs> oh, is that what it was? <laughs> And, That's what that was, yeah. And I, I remember being in the theater, there was a very excited young man in front of me. And I, when I say young man, he was like my age at you know at the time. Yeah. He was just go like yelling out, yeah, 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 with every kick and throw. <laughs> and then he was going, Jackie Chan, Jackie Chan. And his friend was like, dude, would you shut up? <laughs> Yeah, definitely an interesting guy. He made some of the best the best action movies like ever. The police story movies are great. You know what's great about his action movies too is they all have a lot of humor to them. Yes. You know, it's not like watching a Godfrey Ho movie. No, no, it's not like watching right. And it, it has intentional humor in yeah. them. So that became his like how he became famous yeah. was that he knew that he could be funny, and that would be something that audiences would want to see. So he made these crazy these crazy ass stunt filled psycho pictures. But in them, there's a lot of comedy, a lot of physical comedy built into the stunts that makes it less likely you're watching somebody like, he's clearly going to die, to like, oh my God, <laughs> he fell like 30 stories through an awning and landed on his head. <laughs> and then he got up and he like rubbed his head and went, ow. <laughs> and then beats. That's great. And then beats somebody Like up. not knowing that he spent the preceding, between hitting his head and then rubbing his head and saying, ow, he spent like seven months in the hospital and re- in rehabilitation and learned how to walk again. All right, uh, next up. Uh, okay, April 8th, 19... 19- we have a lot of movie actors in this one today for some reason, but uh, April 8th, 1946, you may not recognize his name, but if you watched VHS-based horror movies in the 1980s and 90s, you're definitely going to know his face. 
Tim Thomerson, who was a character actor that found a niche, especially in the full moon slate of direct to VHS productions from like 1985 to 1999 or so, oh, the golden age, where he was known for playing Dollman and. He was in a movie called Trancers, also by Full Moon Entertainment. Very, very versatile actor. Um, and also did uh, showed in other stuff, but he like was featured in those. I must have seen a, 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 bowl, a bunch of his movies because the the 1980s, mid to late 80s, my friend Craig and I would walk down to the local video rental place, go to the horror section, and just try to find goriest splatter films that we could find. So I'm quite sure that we've seen at least one or two of those. Yeah, Full Moon was kind of cool. Like, they operated like a comic book company. So they made films, and then they started crossing characters over. So there's like, there was a movie called Demonic Toys, and there was a movie called Dollman, and then there was Dollman versus Demonic Toys. They crossed over some of the Puppet Master movies and some other stuff, and they just mixed all the characters up, and they always had the same stable of actors who played in them. <laughs> the Dollman Cinematic Universe. Yeah. Yep. All right. So it's, it's, it's exactly what it is. Yes. All right. Moving on to April the 9th, 1926. A man who, when he passed away, they couldn't get the casket closed. Hugh Hefner. <laughs> well, I heard that when he died, he was 64% Viagra yeah. anyway. So Hugh Hefner, founder of Playboy magazine. What a life, man. There are some people on this planet that have just led a life better than you, you know? Yep. And Hugh Hefner is definitely one of them. Not just because of the the, the fact uh, you know owned Playboy magazine. Here's a guy that loved what he did. He loved women. He loved being around beautiful women. Started a magazine and had an empire. You know, a, a huge empire yep. at one time. I'm not even sure if Playboy even exists anymore. Like, why would it? It does. Yeah. Yeah. No, it still does. Most of the places that you would buy, I guess you could get it at certain newsstands. But like 7-Eleven stopped carrying Playboy and, you know, any kind of magazine like that a long time ago. Right. Of course, Walmart doesn't carry it. Like, I haven't seen a physical copy of Playboy in forever. Wow, it could be just a subscription only at this right. point. I know it's still out there. So, you know, with, with the internet, you know, getting to see one naked girl a month is it's not really novel anymore. <laughs> It's true. You know, I, one of the other things that's kind of cool about, again, about Playboy was that it wasn't just the naked girl in the middle of the book. It was, there were there were really good interviews and there was some, they used to publish some fiction. They were a fantastic short fiction market for a long time. Like one that paid thousands of dollars. And I heard rumors about articles. There were, yes, rumors. Uh, yes, I never got that. Actually, I remember reading in like a back issue of Playboy, a section, it was like, you know, um, a segment from a book. And that book later on got turned into a movie and it is probably one of the best known 1980s comedies Fast Times of Ridgemont High but they had a uh, yep. a segment from the book published in Playboy yeah that wasn't unusual for that for that magazine either there was a lot of literary stuff in there that was unusual so again there was a, a lot of good in that magazine the tits <laughs> alright next uh, up April 10th 1843, a guy named Samuel Hanneman is born. Samuel Hanneman is born, as you, if you know science at all, before the invention of germ theory. And because he's born before germ theory, he comes up with the idea that if something causes your stomach to be upset, it must be the same as whatever bacteriological, although no one knows what those are yet, illness makes your stomach upset. And the idea that like causes like, and if you give yourself little amounts of something that make your stomach upset... It'll cure whatever it is that makes your stomach upset. This is the basis of homeopathic medicine. This guy's a f***ing quack! As I call it, a bunch of shit. Yeah, well, again, it's, it's pre-germ theory. It's before there were good microscopes or even microscopes, I think, at all. 
you, it needs to be diluted thousands upon thousands of times so that something that has like a, a poisonous property is so diluted that it can't poison you. It can just make you a little sick. Except the way that homeopathic stuff is diluted now, it's like it's like two molecules of something in the equivalent of a swimming pool of water. I mean, I guess there's a basis in fact over there because like the whole... Nope. No, well, I mean, listen, the whole weakened virus to fight a virus is how vaccines work. So, I mean, I guess I know what he's getting at, but I know it doesn't work because I watched the amazing Randy eat an entire bottle of homeopathic sleeping pills on stage. Yes. And those are all cornstarch. So, but yes, and that's, then that's the point. Yeah. The idea that like, again, vaccinations work because germ theory is proven to be correct. We can identify the bacillus that causes tuberculosis, for example. But if you cough a lot because you stand near a fire, taking charcoal, which is from yep. fire, and ingesting charcoal isn't going to make you immune to tuberculosis. Ah. That's the, the way that oh, this works. All right, that's... Or it doesn't work. That's crazy cuckoo talk. It is, because... But again, this is before people knew what tuberculosis was. Yeah, but people was, still do this There's still a culture of people who are like... I don't like modern medicine. I like alternative medicine, and it's an alternative to being treated for anything with actual I prefer medicine. stuff that has been proven wrong, thank you. I like things that don't work. And finally, wrapping it up, on April the 11th, 1930, founder of the Church of Satan and another party animal, much like uh, our friend Hugh Hefner, Anton LaVey. <laughs> ah, that's right, the guy who's on the uh, Eagles Hotel California cover that we were all warned about. That is such panic. a misnomer. Clearly the most dangerous record in the world is a soft rock yeah, classic. That's such a misnomer because we were told during the Satanic Panic, Hotel California was about Anton LaVey's Satanic Church. But it's not. Yep. It's not at all. The Hotel California song is about somebody moving to California to try to make it in Hollywood and just getting chewed up in the machine. It has nothing to do with the Satanic Church at all. Um, nope. But because Anton LaVey is on the cover, if you open that record up, oh, yeah. it's a double-fold record. He's in there. Uh, Anton LaVey was not really satanic in the devil-worshipping sense. His book, The Satanic Bible, if you actually read it, it's more like a, a self-help guide, <laughs> more or less. It wasn't even really a hot seller for like a long, long time until the satanic panic really took its teeth in the 80s. But it got started in the 70s, and that's when Anton LaVey's book started, you know, selling more copies. Well, there was a there was a period in the swing in the 60s when, like, Sammy Davis Jr. was associated with the church. And uh, Jane Mansfield got decapitated after leaving a church meeting on her way from one place to another. Like, And she was a member of LaVey's little clique. There was some popularity to it in the 60s in the Hollywood set, but it didn't spread out from there until after 69 yeah, or so. But the thing is, is, like, Anton LaVey's Church of Satan had... Very little to do with the devil. It had very much to do with drugs and sex, which is why Sammy Davis Jr. was a big part of it. Yep. Yeah, Sammy Davis Jr. used to walk around and he used to wear one red fingernail. That was to show his uh, his membership into the Church of Satan. Right. But yeah, uh, Anton LaVey Satanism. Yeah, it was more gimmicky than anything else. It was it was he was more of a self help guru. I think he let his persona take him over. You know? Well, no, I mean, it's, it makes sense. Like, look, dude, you, you don't do these things because you'd want to do anything but make money. Yeah. And if me putting on two plastic devil horns and saying, now oh, I drink the blood of the devil is going to get you to give me money, I'm going to put devil horns on and you're going to give me money. 
There's a sucker born every minute. You may as well draw some money out of him. Uh, one thing about the Satanic Panic, it took us away from a lot of really good music. It made us afraid of a lot of really good music. And for everything they take away, they try to replace it with something else. But when you end up just getting... The worst song ever. Young Jeff, what do we have for uh, the worst song ever this week? Uh, well, glad you bring it up. Today we go to visit our friends in, again north of the border of Maine and of Wisconsin in Canada to the pretty much the princess of Canada, Celine Dion. Oh, hello, Celine Dion. <laughs> the princess of Canada... Celine Dion, in 1996, released a single called Because You Loved Me, which is a very sentimental song about loss. I know this because in watching the video for this song, all of the comments at the YouTube uh, location where I viewed it were about people that this song reminded them of who are now dead. (laughs) It's the most morbid comment section ever. The number one ingredient on this is like high fructose corn syrup, too. It is. I didn't know what song this was, and I was like, well, I'm going to listen to it. I'm like, oh, this freaking song. And let's hear the clip. You were my voice when I couldn't speak. You were my eyes when I couldn't see. You saw the best there was in me. Lifted me up when I couldn't reach. You gave me faith because you believed. <laughs> no, you know who? like Celine Dion my mom your mom somebody's mom that's a mom that's a mom thing yes and and the princess of Canada doesn't just do songs like this or songs about the Titanic or songs about other things dear and near to the hearts of Canadians everywhere she also inadvisably does cover songs now and then Yes. Such as the most ill-advised cover song in the history of cover songs. And it's entirely possible that someone could take a song that is very good and render it as the worst song ever by earnestly trying to perform it and pushing through irrespective of how terrible it is. And that's what we get with uh, Celine Dion, Princess of Canada's live version of (laughs) ACDC's You Shook Me All Night Long. What? Yep. That is like an an audio Escher painting. I cannot... I cannot put those two together. Wait, oh, I'm... It's terrible. Like jumping <laughs> Jesus on rubber crutches. <laughs> Doesn't she have a manager? Didn't somebody say no? It's entirely possible that accidentally hearing part of this song caused Malcolm Young's dementia to accelerate to the point where he died young. <laughs> you know what? I, I, I'm trying to put together like how this happened. One or two. One or two things happened. One, somebody said, "What would it happen if somebody covered this song with a voice that?" Doesn't sound like they're clearing their throat. <laughs> Who can we get? And the other one is, you remember that scene in Anchorman? Whenever they like said that he will read anything off of the teleprompter. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then put the just, question mark on a teleprompter. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think somebody, like as a joke, put that song into the set list. And they right. just started playing it. And then 
it's too late now. I mean, they started playing, and then she's like, "It was a fast machine." She kept a motor. She actually sings it like she's like she speaks English as a third language, <laughs> um, and it's to an audience of people who are much older and more Caucasian than than you typically find in one place, even in Vegas. This oh, is yeah, more this like is... a Branson type audience. Yeah, this is going to uh, be all the nanas and stuff like that. Like, yeah. And, oh, and, you know and, what Nana would like? Nana would like to go see Celine Dion. Let's, she wants to hear what the heart will go on. Yeah. You know, from the Titanic. Yeah. She loves the Titanic. That's nice. When all those poor people died in the boat in that sad movie. With the pan flutes. Yeah. The, yeah, Nana likes yeah, I that. Know exactly. Yeah. Come on, Nana. We got to get you away from the penny slots so we can go <laughs> see Celine Dion. <laughs> Come on. Oh, don't get your oxygen tank hooked yeah. on the thing. And then she kicks into a ACDC. Yeah. It's like, what's next? Creeping death from Metallica? Oh, or something good by Gigi Allen. <laughs> Outlaw scum or something would be a great Celine Dion cover. I'd like to do a song for you right now called Now I Want to Go F*** Myself. <laughs> Speaking of F-bombs, uh, trivia question at the beginning of the show oh, was... What was the first movie to include the F word? And I remember saying it probably came out between 67 and 70. Yeah. You said that's true. It came out in 1970. I also said that, uh, yeah, the F bomb wasn't the only bomb in the movie. Um, Any guess? I'm going to say that it was Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. That's an excellent guess, but I remember watching that movie in school, and there's no way that Mr. Gagliardi would have showed us a movie with an F-bomb in it. So, huh. nope, the name of the movie that came out, it spawned a very popular television show, and the name of the movie is MASH. Huh. Yep. And I'm wondering where the bomb was in MASH, because there isn't one in the movie. And now I'm trying to remember where the F-bomb is in MASH. Well, I say bombs because it was... Oh, I remember where. I'm going to resign my commission. Well, then resign your f***ing commission, right? <laughs> yep. That's the... MASH, the, the motion picture, the original MASH movie, 1970. Uh, Great movie. Yep. So, yeah, uh, Radar from the movie is the same actor that played Radar in the in the television series, too. Yep, that's right. I'll get the serial numbers off that Jeep, sir. You get the serial numbers off that Jeep, Radar. <laughs> <laughs> Great character. Yeah. I, I got to, fantastic, I, yeah. fantastic movie. I got to meet him. He was super nice. I bet he was. Yeah. All right. But that is going to wrap up this week's show. Have all a great right. week, everybody. We'll see you back here in seven days. All right. Say goodnight, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. All right. See you next week, guys. Bye. Special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly. This week was way better last year. You can follow and or message us over on Instagram or on Facebook at T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Make sure you tell your friends if you like our show. And if you don't like our show, tell your friends you did like it. It'll be a great prank you can play on them. Have a good week, guys.